Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing great now. School is back. I'm down to one child. It's like a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My kids are in school. Of course, here our summer break isn't till May, but I, it's actually harder without them because they keep the little one occupied for me. They're older, though, so it's it's a different story. And it's ridiculously hot at the moment. It's too hot to go to the beach or the pool. So you're kind of stuck inside and the kids go stir crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We're having the stir crazy problem because it's so cold out. We have two sponsors today and we want to welcome back to the show both Bloom That and Blue Apron. So stay tuned for our special offers from both of them later in the show. We're really thankful for their support. Now, tonight's story comes from Allie, actually. She told me to watch a documentary called The Imposter. And I'm not going to do a lot of lead-in to the story because for those of you who don't know it, I don't want to give away too many spoilers of how it unfolded. But as soon as I started digging into this more beyond the documentary, I knew we had to cover it as an episode because there is so much here to discuss and so much to unpack. So, Ellie, what did you, not giving away too much of the content of the documentary, what did you think about the documentary as far as interest level, production value, that kind of thing? Well, The Imposter is probably equal my favorite documentary along with Dear Zachary. So if you haven't watched Dear Zachary, watch that one as well. But it's one of the best done documentaries, I think, as far as production and direction goes. The way the camera angles work, it leads you to think a certain direction, which I can't say because we'll talk about it a bit later. But yeah, it's, it's just very well done. This documentary kept my attention the entire time. I didn't have like knitting out or my phone playing a game. I was completely yep. into it because it's so much about the people involved and you have to watch them. And so I'm telling you, when you watch this, you have to watch and you have to watch the people because... They're all very interesting people. They all bring something to this mystery. And I'm impressed that the filmmaker had access to so many people involved. Pretty much every name we mention here, well, almost, he had access to for interviews. And just little things like the backgrounds he used for the family. It was within the home, but with the imposter, it was like a blank background and the segues and my husband doesn't like true crime it scares him but this documentary it it did hold his interest the whole time and I know you suggested this documentary to our listeners as well in our Facebook group and I kind of joked a bit that now they're all going to skip this episode because they watched the documentary but I think people are going to be even more interested in hearing what we found out about the story that wasn't in the documentary and how all the people kind of fit together in this broader story. I really hope that everyone who watched the documentary gets more out of it from listening to this. If I had one criticism on the documentary, it was the fact that Nicholas was barely mentioned outside of the imposter taking his place. I'm glad that we can 
give Nicholas more of a backstory here today. And before we get into that, let's go ahead and take a quick moment for our sponsor. They help us bring the show to you. I've had my big, gorgeous Bloom That Bouquet through its whole cycle, and I feel so good about endorsing this company. My Bloom That Bouquet was full of the wow factor, fresh and expertly designed. The bouquet I ordered included roses, and I'm pretty sure this is the longest I've ever had roses last. With Valentine's coming up, I know that's what we're thinking about, but these aren't just for your significant other and not only for Valentine's Day. My mother-in-law just moved and I sent her a bouquet to brighten up her new space, let her know we're thinking of her. Thank yous and I'm just thinking of yous. Those are all good reasons to send a big, beautiful bloom that bouquet to a friend, a family member, even a coworker. Fresh is immediately what stood out to me, but I'm also thrilled that I received no substitutions in the bouquet. It looks just like you see on the website. You could spend the same money and get grocery store quality flowers that were picked weeks ago, with carnations substituted for roses. But if you're tired of that experience, you'll be glad to know there is no such corner cutting with Bloom That Flowers. You're getting a true value here. Bloom That is already a great value, but we have another special offer for this week only for our listeners. You will get the best price on a gorgeous, Instagram-ready bouquet, plus a premium designer vase that normally costs everyone else $15. Plus, you're going to get an additional 15% off their lowest price. You heard me. They're reducing the price right before Valentine's Day. You can only get this amazing deal if you go to bloomthat.com site. That's B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T dot com slash S-I-G-H-T. And find the perfect handcrafted designer flowers. You'll get that free premium vase and the 15% discount. Again, it's bloomthat.com slash site for that premium design bouquet that anyone would buy for themselves, plus the free vase, the exclusive savings, and even if Valentine's Day is over, Bloom That is still offering a great discount on it any of their bouquets for the rest of the month, but only if you go to bloomthat.com slash site. Let's talk first about Nicholas. Nicholas Barclay was born on December 31st, 1980. He had two older half-siblings, a brother named Jason and a sister named Carrie, and they were both from his mother's first marriage. Nick's father wasn't around, and it's not even clear at what point he knew Nick was even his son. And you, his mother, Beverly. Oh, and you will see reported that Jason was his uncle, but he definitely was his half-brother. And I think this misunderstanding comes from their age difference. Jason was 11 years older than Nick. His mother, Beverly, worked overnight shifts at Dunkin' Donuts in San Antonio, Texas, which is where they lived. She worked almost every night and slept like most graveyard shift workers during the day. Beverly also struggled with drug addiction for most of Nick's life, with some successes at sobriety along the way. In 1994, Nick was 13 years old. He was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and he was rather small for his age. He was 4 foot 8 inches and about 80 pounds. He looked a lot younger than 13 years old in the pictures I saw of him. Absolutely. A listener of ours, Suzanne, mentioned that she thinks it's funny that Allie and I always have a kid to compare for an episode. And so here we go again. I have a 13-year-old <laughs> boy, and he's pretty much smack in the middle of the growth chart at 13, and he's 5'3". 
Uh, we won't talk about how much he weighs because he's kind of built like a tank. But that puts Nick at seven inches shorter than an average 13-year-old boy. He's actually more closer in height to my almost eight-year-old. His older half-brother had recently moved back into the home to help Beverly with Nick because he was more than she could handle. But Jason also had a drug problem, and his drug problem was more significant than Beverly's. So it's debatable how much help he would have been with helping take care of Nick. Nicholas had a big personality, but he was not an easy child. He had already run away a few times. He was 13, and he already had three tattoos, all homemade. He had a T between his thumb and forefinger on his left hand, the letters LN on his left ankle, and a J on his shoulder. He regularly skipped school. He was on the radar of the truancy court. His mom said that he did whatever he wanted, and he really didn't care about the consequences, and he was already accruing a criminal record. It's been reported that the day after he was reported missing, he was facing sentencing for the theft of tennis shoes. The home situation was not what you would consider exactly ideal. As you said, Charlie, you have a single mum working long shifts and she's struggling with drugs. You have an adult brother with a drug problem himself. And then you have a 13-year-old kid that neither of them can control. The police had been called to the house previously because of reported arguments within the home. It was alleged that Nick and Jason were both physically abusive towards their mother. And we're getting into inconsistent timeline zone here, which you all know we love to find. You'll see reported that Nick disappeared on June 13, 1994. However, you will also see that that was the day he was reported missing, with his mum claiming he disappeared three days before this. So when did he go missing? Was it June 10 or June 13? We really don't know. But what we do know is that before he left on whichever day it was, Nicholas and his mother had an argument. She was considering placing him out of home at a juvenile facility. And truth be told, she may not have had a say in this. It was a possible sentence for his crimes, and he obviously did not want to go. He had all this freedom, he could go and come as he pleased, and in the juvenile facility, he would have a strict routine. She gave him $5 and sent him off to play basketball with his friends about a mile or two from his house. The playing basketball part was confirmed by other kids at the park, so we know he made it there. Jason, his brother, reported that Nick did call him from a payphone asking for a ride home. Now, I don't know if call records were ever checked because this could have been confirmed fairly easy, but I doubt they were ever checked. So in this phone call, Nick was told his mother was sleeping because she had worked the night before and Jason told him to just walk home. He told Nick that it wasn't far and he did not want to wake her up. That was the second to last time anyone reported having seen him. And I really don't think they checked phone records because having a history of running away, it was initially assumed he had run away. And that's what Beverly thought. And that's why she didn't call the police. And that's why she says she didn't call the police for three days. Yeah. He had usually come home before that. He hadn't been gone as far as I understand, quite that long before. 
but he did have that court date coming up. He was worried about being sent to the group home by the courts. A typical 13-year-old avoiding the consequence. He would stay away until after that court date, thinking that would make it go away somehow. Yeah. But even though he didn't bring anything with him and had been gone for three days, the police also considered him a likely runaway. According to Nick's mom, they, the family, were the only ones who were really even looking for him. And the media completely ignored the case. A troubled teen ran away. It's not what we call newsworthy. And that's unfortunate because, as Ali said, one of our goals with this episode was to bring more of Nicholas's story into his own story. But because so little was reported at the time, there's not a lot to work with. The very last time anyone reported seeing Nick was three months later. On September 25th, Jason called the police and told them that he caught Nicholas trying to break into the garage. Maybe he was trying to get his stuff. If this incident happened, he may have been trying to get some stuff. He may have been trying to get back in the home. But when he saw Jason, he took off. A police officer looked in the neighborhood for him, but didn't find him. And now there, like I said, there wasn't a lot reported on Nicholas at the time. So I'm not sure if he knocked on doors or just drove through the neighborhood looking in yards and on sidewalks. I think it's more likely he they just he just drove around. Yeah, the police report only says, quote, checked the area. We're going to go ahead and fast forward three years, four months. Nothing really had happened on Nick's case, even though he was gone for this long and he was only 13 when he left. He was still being considered a runaway. In October of 1997, a tourist in Spain called the police from a payphone saying he found a young man, probably a 14 or 15-year-old, huddled and scared. The police came, and when they couldn't get any information from him, like, I mean, not he didn't say a word, they took him and they placed him in a children's shelter. The people at the children's shelter didn't get much more out of him until they said they would be taking his fingerprints and sending them to the police for identification. At this time, he spoke up, saying, oh, actually, he's an American runaway, and that he would call his parents when it was daytime in the United States. So that night, a couple police stations around the country got some phone calls describing a missing child that was found in Spain, trying to see if anyone identified him. And this person calling, who identified himself as a Spanish police officer, was told to call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Virginia. And so he did. And this police officer, in quotes, asked if they had anyone that matched that description. And they had one, Nicholas Barclay. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children faxed over a black and white missing flyer. And the police officer confirmed that, yes, this teen and Nicholas were one in the same. The family was notified that Nicholas was found and Kerry flew over to Spain to get her brother. As soon as she saw him, she hugged him and told him how much he looked like their Uncle Pat. Kerry was just focused on making him feel comfortable and getting him back home. The US Embassy and Kerry were sure that this was Nicholas, but the Spanish authorities wanted more proof. And this is a major scene in the documentary. They took five family photos that the boy should never had seen before, and they asked him to identify the people in the photos. He knew four out of five photos, and that was enough for them to be satisfied that they had the right kid. 
Nick was issued with a US passport and he flew home with Carey back to San Antonio. Here he was met at the airport by his mum, Carey's then husband and Carey's two children. His brother Jason, he did not come to the airport. In seeing Nick for the first time, Beverly held back a bit. She said he seemed to hold back and she knew he'd been through a lot of trauma and she didn't want to push him too hard. Nick was home, but that's not the end of an investigation. He was kidnapped and transported out of the country as part of what he identified as a sex ring. Now, this is a serious crime, and there were other children involved, so the FBI was immediately involved in this. They were involved in this before Carrie even got over there. And I don't think that fake Nicholas had thought that through enough to think that the FBI would then have to be involved. The FBI wanted to interview him as soon as he got back in the country, but it took about two weeks before FBI agent Nancy Fisher and the family connected to get the interview done. And when they talked to him, he told a really horrific story. While playing basketball at the park, he was approached by two kids and a rag was put over his face. And when he woke up, he didn't know where he was or who he was with. He had been kidnapped and moved repeatedly by military agents. Now, of course, when you're saying that there are military operatives working a child sex ring, that really alerts the FBI to a serious issue. He and the other children were repeatedly sexually and physically abused and experimented on. He claimed that needles were used to inject chemicals into his eyes that actually altered the color of his eyes from blue to brown. And this was really important to the kidnappers to try to alter his appearance and alter the appearance of all the kids they had kidnapped so that they wouldn't be found out. And in the meantime, Nick was getting into a routine in the U.S. Beverly lived in San Antonio still, but had moved out of the house they lived in when he had disappeared, and she was renting a room and didn't feel like she could adequately take care of a teen boy who was traumatized. She was still working those overnight shifts, and so he would have been left home alone all night. And if you really think about it, she couldn't handle him three years previously before he had undergone significant trauma. So now here he is 16. He lived three years of serious abuse. How would she ever have the tools or be equipped to care for him now? So instead, Nick moved in with his sister, brother-in-law, niece, and nephew in a significantly more rural area than San Antonio. His nephew and he weren't that far apart in age, and they would hang out after school and play video games. And Carrie felt that the best thing for him would be a normal, routine-driven life like just the average teenager would have. Let's leave Nicholas safe at his sister's house for a minute, adjusting to life in the U.S., and we're going to take a quick break for our next amazing sponsor. Picture it. Kansas City, 2017. A tired and overworked mother of five has no time to cook before running kids around for the evening. Her husband is out of town on a business trip. What does she do? Thankfully, she has a blue apron box and a couple of teenagers whose combined cooking skills pretty much amounts to being able to make grilled cheese sandwiches. But thanks to the clear step-by-step directions from Blue Apron, she can leave them to it. All the fresh ingredients are included and pre-portioned, so she doesn't have to worry about them yelling, Mom, I can't find any onions. 
Blue Apron provided this totally non-fictional family with an affordable home-cooked meal that even those with little or no cooking experience can create. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a difference. And there is no compromise between convenience and taste or between convenience and the family standards of buying ethically sourced ingredients. Blue Apron believes in these same values. So, Charlie, looking over the upcoming meals, I have to know which one you're most looking forward to your kids cooking for you. Definitely the cashew chicken stir fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice. It sounds like the perfect blend of sweet and savory. And what I really love is that if I decided when I sit down to order that this is not the meal I want, I can just pick something else because they have flexible meal selections that I can customize. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com site. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So we left Nick in the care of his sister who tried really hard to give him a normal routine and the life of an average American teenager. But he wasn't a normal teenager. He had the rarest story of all. The truth is that long-term missing children being found alive, it just doesn't really happen. It's a unicorn. It's that rare. And on top of that, being found in another country, it's unheard of. Enter San Antonio-based tabloid private investigator Charlie Parker. An old tabloid TV show called Hard Copy. Do you remember that show? Oh yeah, I used to watch it. Yeah, me too. I remember being in my early teens, watching it all wide-eyed and innocent. I loved it. Between Hard Copy and Unsolved Mysteries, that kind of defines what I watched as a teenager. Yes. But for those who aren't old like us, Hard Copy was similar to A Current Affair. Hard Copy heard about the story and called Parker to help track down Nicholas and his family for a sit-down interview. It didn't take long to find him or to arrange the interview, so within a week the interview happens. And it's a strange sight to see Nicholas dressed in a hat, sunglasses and a scarf, so you really can only see his nose and mouth. So the interview happens and Charlie Parker is standing nearby watching it all unfold. And while he is standing there, he thought the accent was odd. Why did Nick have such a strong accent after having living in the US for all his developmental years? And his eye colour was wrong. But then Nick explained this away by his captors using experimental needles and chemicals to his eyes. Looking around the room, Parker saw a photo of Nick from before he disappeared and something just didn't sit right with him. He asked the cameraman to make sure he got a good shot of Nick's ears during the interview and he pocketed the picture. Later in his office, he loaded both the picture and the still image into his computer and he compared the two images. And Parker says he heard an old FBI trick about how you can always identify someone by their ears. And the ears in these two pictures, they just didn't match up. And this led Parker to do some fact-checking on Nick's story. No, there wasn't any known way to alter eye colour. And not speaking English for three years would not keep someone from going back to their original accent once they were back home. Parker's next question was an obvious one. If this wasn't Nick, then who was he? 
And why would someone pretend to be someone's missing child, move to a new country and then live with complete strangers? It just made no sense. That is, unless the person was a terrorist or a spy. Obviously, Parker was concerned that a dangerous person had just used a massive deception to enter the country. So he called both Beverly and the FBI. He noted in his case file that the family was upset but insistent that this definitely was their nick. And last night I actually had a thought under my head to go ahead and double check that there really isn't anything that would darken the irises. And there is, but it really wouldn't apply here. There is a prescription eye drop available at the time for treating glaucoma. And one of the side effects can be darkening of the eyes, but it would generally be hazel or green eyes to darker not much, not so much blue. Blue to brown would not have happened. And were these available in the 1990s? Yeah, this is an older medication. Okay. But that would mean that fake Nicholas would have to go get a prescription and get the eye drops. Yeah, the military people injecting glaucoma medicine into his eyes on the off chance that he had that one side effect of darkening his eyes, it doesn't make sense. No. But, you know, I did my due diligence and looked it up. The FBI agent in charge of Nicholas's case was Nancy Fisher, and she had seen these red flags as well, though she was a little bit more swayed by the family insisting this was their son, because after all, why would they say it if it wasn't true? But after hearing from Parker, she decided to interview Nick again, but this time it was under the pretext of doing a forensic exam of Nicholas to get him help for his trauma. And the FBI was able to get Nick to Houston for this interview. But what they were really looking for wasn't treatment options, but rather proof one way or the other that this person was Nick. And the forensic examiner noted a handful of things that caused him to question the veracity of the story. First, Nick recounted his abuse without any observable change. He didn't get agitated. He didn't look away. He didn't act uncomfortable as he's talking about these terrible things that were done to him. And second, Parker was onto something with that accent. The forensic examiner could not get Nick to be able to speak without an accent at all. It wasn't just that the accent had become more comfortable. Even with effort, Nick couldn't imitate an American accent. Now, a person who spent 13 years in an American home that spoke English would be able to speak in unaccented American English, even if it took effort. The main thing the forensic examiner concluded was that this person presenting as Nicholas did not grow up in an American home. Now, he couldn't say who he was or anything else, just that he did not grow up in that household. Now, uh, this story gets a little different depending on who's telling it. So according to the FBI agent Fisher, she said she called Carrie and said, don't come get Nick from the airport because he was an imposter. They would handle it from there. There's one story that they that Beverly and Carrie were just so insistent that the FBI was wrong that they showed up and picked him up anyway. In the documentary... Carrie seems to have not really understood what the agent was saying, like that the agent didn't put it in so many words that this is not Nicholas, do not come get him. But regardless of why or how or what happened in that conversation, she showed up at the airport and took Nick back to her home. 
even after the FBI was sure it wasn't him. And while all this is going on, Nick is acting up and it's getting worse. He was skipping school, getting suspended, acting out. He got in an argument with Carrie's son and attacked him. He ran up a $1,600 international phone bill calling France and Spain. One of the big things, he stole Carrie's car and drove it to Oklahoma where he was pulled over for speeding. And now the family went to pick him up and take him home. Most alarming is around Christmas time, he began to self-harm. He used a razor to cut out his face and spent some time in a psychiatric ward for it. Now, we should note that if this was real Nicholas and had had that trauma, he wasn't getting help for it since he had come home. And all this behaviour would have been typical to a certain extent of Nicholas before he went missing. Right. So this behavior doesn't stand out because this is who 16-year-old Nicholas was on the track to being. Exactly. And he had experienced trauma, so they were excusing a lot of it away. And so I'm just sure that everyone right now is yelling at their podcast apps to DNA test him, just test him. And, And they did. Now, at first, the family refused. Beverly said this was her son. She would not cooperate. Nick, on the other hand, actually agreed But then when he got to the doctor's office, he flipped out, claiming that the nurses were staring at him like he was some kind of freak or weirdo, and he stormed out without the blood test being done. Now, this was a pretty well-crafted scene. I'll give him credit for that. Looking cooperative, but not actually going through with it. In February, so four months after Nick came home, a warrant was issued for DNA samples from Beverly and Nick, as well as fingerprints from Nick. And Beverly still refused, even lying down on the floor, refusing to go with them for the test. And this story goes both ways as well, because Beverly denies doing that. Right. And with the court order, she really had no choice but to comply. I want to talk about two other tests real quick. Nick took a polygraph, and the results were inconclusive. While he seemed to answer some questions about his identity deceptively, it showed he answered others truthfully. So a definitive result couldn't be determined. And the other test wasn't so much a test as much as an analysis. Agent Fisher gathered photos of Nick's family members, and she had a forensic artist do a comparison of the bone structure. So if you remember, Carrie saw him and thought, oh, he looks just like this family member, Uncle Pat. The artist actually agreed to some extent. She found more similarities than differences in the photo analysis. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean he was related to them, but she couldn't rule it out either. Because when I look at the pictures of Nick as a 13-year-old and then fake Nick as a 16-year-old, I can kind of see some similarities in the nose and the face structure, but maybe not a three-year difference, maybe a 10-year difference, but you can see some slight similarities if you excuse the hair colour and the eye colour. Exactly. It excuses. If you exclude the coloring, I definitely think it could be 13-year-old Nicholas and then 20-something-year-old Nicholas. I can see that as well. One of the things that really made people lean is that Nicholas had a very distinct gap in his front teeth, and so did fake Nicholas. Yes. So I think even when they had questions, 
people can cling to the one thing that confirms what they want, even when nothing else matches. Exactly. So when people say, look at him, there's no way he's Nicholas, I can kind of understand a family that is desperate for their son, how they can say, well, look, there's the nose, there's the teeth. That could be Nick. And there's always the question, why would someone lie about this? This is a ridiculous thing to lie about. And we will get into that later. After getting this court order, Nicholas had a memory surface or was ready to share the name of a boy that he was with. And the name was Till Crouch, a boy who was missing from Berlin. And at first, they didn't really believe him. They were thinking this name was made up with everything else. But they investigated, and there was a boy who went missing about a year before Nicholas did. And Till's mother was flown to San Antonio to meet with Nicholas and ask him questions, figure out what he knew. Charlie Parker was there, and, you know, he was already on to Nicholas. But even if he and the FBI no longer believed he was Nicholas— He still could have been part of a pedophile ring at some point. He told a lot of details that rung true. So he may have actually seen this boy. When sitting down with Till's mother, Nick was asked to point out any scars Till had on his body. And after he did so, Till's mother pulled Parker aside and said he was lying. Till had a very noticeable prominent scar on his forehead Anyone who met him, even in passing, would have known that, and Nick did not indicate that there was a scar at all. Fingerprints were sent to Interpol and DNA was sent to the lab. It was then just a matter of waiting it out. Nick moved back in with his mum, but she eventually called Charlie Parker, who, for his part, had been telling Nick for this whole time, and she tells him she believed him. She believed that this person was not her son. She had driven him past his middle school and he had not recognised it. But according to Parker, it was a bit less calm than this. Beverly was screaming and Parker went to the apartment. Nick was holding a baseball bat and in Parker's words, he was acting crazy. He managed to calm him down and told him he'd take him to breakfast the following morning to talk. On March 6, 1998, five months into being Nick, Parker took the young man out to the local diner for breakfast. During that conversation, the man said, I'm Frederick Bodin and I'm wanted by Interpol. So some background on Frederick. Frederick Bodin was born on June 13th, 1974 in a suburb in Paris. By the way, that makes him 23 years old, not 16. While he was going to school and hanging out with teenagers in Texas, he was actually 23. And I did hear that he was, quote unquote, hanging out with the girl, which seems a bit creepy now. Yeah, and he he claims that he never had any motivations of sexually abusing children. That wasn't his motivation of posing as a teenager. So, you know, nobody accused him, but still, 23, hanging out with teenagers. His mother was 17 or 18 and unmarried when he was born, and his father was a 25-year-old Algerian immigrant. She had met him at a factory where they both worked. She never even told him she was pregnant because she found out he was already married, and so she quit her job and actually only remembers his first name. According to Frederick, who is obviously a huge liar and 
you have to kind of judge for yourself how much to be trusted. His mother's father was a racist who wanted her to abort him rather than have a mixed race baby. And he said this carried into his childhood where he felt unwanted and unloved frequently by his family. And his, his mother was young and according to family members, she wasn't really ready to be a parent and to settle down with a child. So when Frederick was two, his grandparents intervened. Child services removed Frederick from his mother's custody and placed him with the grandparents. Yes, the same grandfather he claims was racist and never wanted him to be born. Because that doesn't make sense. Because if the grandfather was that racist and wanted Frederick aborted, why would he care enough to then take custody of him? He could have went into a child. He could have went into a children's home. He didn't have to go with them. In another article that I found from before this documentary was made, actually very close to when this incident happened, his mother said that she actually voluntarily gave him up when he was like four or five and gave him to her parents. But they still would have taken him in, even though they hated him. I, You know, if he's not lying about his grandfather being a racist who didn't want him and he spent a lot of his formative years in that home, that would be traumatic. But to say if Frederick was not lying is a pretty big if for someone who impersonated numerous people, which we will get into later. Being poor, living with his grandparents, not knowing who his father was, and standing out in a predominantly white small town in France, I will concede that he probably had some issues, even if he wasn't as abused as he claimed. And possibly he was abused. We can talk about that later, too. And as a child, he started making up stories of his father's identity as a spy or a secret agent. And these were kind of the first identity lies he laid down. At 12, he had been caught stealing from neighbors and he was sent to a home for juveniles. I can't really tell if... It was a home that he was sent to by the court, by child services, or if his grandparents voluntarily placed him there. It wasn't clear in anything that I could find. No. And he ended up moving into a different home at 16 before he ran away. And it sounds not unlike the group home scenario that Nick Barclay was looking at. And Frederick and Nicholas actually had quite a bit in common. Both of them had fathers who were out of the picture They were both rebellious. They were both getting in trouble with the law. They were even both devoted Michael Jackson fans. And I'm just going to say it. I recommend looking up Frederick's YouTube channel. And you can see his, even now, his Michael Jackson dance moves. I think we need to share that with the group. That It was the funniest thing I've seen in forever. I I wanted to share it already, but I, I really want you guys to hear this first and then I'll then I'll share it. He's not a bad dancer. It's just... It's just that he's a middle-aged, balding man doing Michael Jackson moves. Yes. And knowing this kind of backstory, I don't know why. It just seems very odd that this is what he's doing. Especially when you think about, when you look at his YouTube channel, all the other videos, it just sticks out as unusual. Yes. It turns out that Nicholas, while being Frederick's most elaborate con, it definitely wasn't his first. His first was when he was 16. He had run away from the group home he was in and he told a police officer he was a lost British teen 
and he made up some random name. This didn't get him very far because at this stage, Frederick spoke very little English. His next impression was of a mute teen, possibly learning that talking gave him away the last time. While we are covering a lot of information in The Imposter and more, it's still worth watching the documentary. In The Imposter, they don't go into too many of his previous identities, but just hearing him explain how he builds a con and how he tells lies, it's, it's crazy. And you can see how these previous cons helped him learn and develop these abilities. He has an ability to observe and read people in an instant and the ability to then adjust to what they're giving back to him. So if he's acting like a scared teen and people are standoffish, he knows to go ahead and pivot and start acting in a way that'll get him noticed. Like he just knows what to do. He knows how to appear younger by wearing baggier clothes even. I mean, just little things. It's really interesting to hear him talk about it. Just hearing him in the documentary talk about how he knew how to act like he was sexually abused by if someone reached out to him, he would flinch away. It's just incredible. Yeah, it, it's the level of detail and that's how he got away with a lot of these cons. So yes, you have to watch the documentary just to get an inkling of how he does this. For the next two years, he claims to have posed for at least a dozen different children, which gave him homes in shelters and children's hospitals. He continued this past adulthood to imitate traumatised teens, generally with the goal of getting shelter and someone to take care of him. He says that he did this to relive his childhood and for a chance to feel loved, but I think a lot of that is psychobabble and more part of his con. I think that, yes, there would have been some questionable stuff that happened to him as a child. But did he run with this and use it to his advantage way past the time when he should have been getting his act together and being an adult? Hell yes. I think this was about A, having to delay being an adult and take care of himself and B, the thrill of the con. He rarely continued a con past the time people were catching on. He would just reveal his true identity and move on to the next one. Understandably, he gained national attention in France for these cons, even being on television, and Interpol were aware of him. So he took his act on the road, which took him to Spain in 1997. Now, like we said, Nicholas was his most ambitious con, and it wasn't one he really planned in advance, but he more rolled with it, kind of like an improv actor would. Shortly after his arrest, he had this whole tale about how he was hitchhiking and picked up by two men who kidnapped and raped him, and he was kept in a house with the real Nicholas Barclay, and he and Nicholas became the best of friends, and at Nicholas's request, he pretended to be Nick when he escaped so that he could bring peace to the family. But that was, again, just one of Frederick's little stories. So why did he never roll with that? With... This story, one of the things he started telling it in interviews, he started getting tripped up on the details. There was a Guardian interview where they asked him more details about, well, wait, if you did this, then what about this? Then what about this? And he started getting tripped up. And he's a pretty good con man in that he cuts when he's in over his head. You know, he doesn't keep it going, which is interesting. Which is smart on his part to know when to just cut. 
After the tourist, who was probably Frederick himself, to be honest, called the police and had Frederick sent to the children's shelter. The documentary kind of hints on that, that it was Frederick that made the phone call. Yeah, because he played that part before of someone who found a kid and it turns out that it's just him. So Frederick played at mute as he had before. They were going to fingerprint him to identify him, so he spoke up saying he was an American runaway. That gave him the chance to, quote, call his parents, and he used that time calling around to those police departments and then calling the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Now, they looked on their database and found someone who matched the vague description that they were given, and it was Nicholas Barclay. And when he asked for the missing flyer to be faxed to confirm, he just got that old black and white paper and... He called back and said it was a match because he figured it was close enough. But he asked for a full packet to be mailed immediately to the shelter. And so he waited for this to come in and he intercepted the mail so that he would be the one who got this packet. Now, meanwhile, Nick's family's being contacted. The U.S. Embassy in Spain is beginning to mobilize. And things started moving forward probably faster than Frederick had anticipated. He gets this package, and it includes a color photo. And he realizes the match is not good. In a black and white photo, he couldn't tell that Nicholas had blue eyes. The hair looked kind of darkish, and you can explain kind of dark hair. But he really looked not that much like Nicholas, and that faded black and white picture originally faxed to him was just too vague. Which is interesting because other missing persons posters and the such that I've seen always list the hair and eye colour, but this one didn't. And sometimes I've gone on NamUs and there's not much out there. Well, that goes back to our premium episode on Kenny Veach, how his NamUs page had nothing. Even though there was information out there, the profile had nothing there. So if you remember, Frederick is half Albanian, so he had dark hair and brown eyes instead of blonde hair and blue eyes. Nick had tattoos that Frederick would have no idea about because who would anticipate tattoos on a 13-year-old? While he couldn't do anything about the eye color except make up this weird story, he did dye his hair blonde. And just ask our listeners, how many with dark hair ever tried to significantly lighten your hair at home? Now let's just say... (laughs) This is why colorists are always available for coloring repairs, because his hair ended up with that kind of brassy home dye job look, and his roots were still pretty dark. You'll notice almost all the pictures you see of Frederick as Nicholas, he is wearing a hat. He had another youth in the shelter give him the same tattoos Nick had. They were the simple homemade tattoos, so they were easy for anyone to replicate. And this is the point in the documentary where I said, why don't you leave? (laughs) Why are you still doing this? I think at this point, he actually started thinking maybe he could make a life in America and have this new start. Like I said, you have to wonder how Frederick described himself that triggered Nicholas Barclay to show up in that search because they didn't have the same hair or eye color. But what they had in common was they were both kind of short and slight in build and they had the gap between the front teeth. 
Nicholas was blonde, but hair darkens during puberty. So a 13-year-old with blonde hair could easily become a 16-year-old with brown hair. And looking at his family, they weren't exactly very blonde. They were kind of dark blonde, light brown. So you could have got away with it. Right. And uh, Nicholas's hair was pretty light, so it's kind of hard to believe that it got as dark. But, you know... He passed off the changing eye color, so he probably could have just rolled with dark hair and nobody would have noticed if they were willing to excuse the eye color. But again, you have to wonder why he didn't just call them back when he got that packet and said, sorry, bad match, and moved on. Instead, he got tattoos, he got a bad dye job, and he actually was going to go for it. When the family thought Nick was found, they were obviously overwhelmed. It was a lot of excitement, but there was also worry and possibly even some anxiety. This wasn't their little street punk of a 13-year-old anymore. He had been traumatised and they would have hardly knew him. Of course, Kerry called the shelter and she wanted to speak to Nicholas, but he was shy about speaking, so she spoke instead to a social worker from the shelter. And when I say social worker from the shelter... What I'm actually saying is she spoke to Frederick pretending to be a social worker from the shelter. Kerry heard who she thought was Nick saying he loved her. She said she was going to come and get him. The US Embassy sent representatives to the shelter to see fake Nicholas. After all, this is a kidnapped US citizen in a foreign country. They needed to get there and get him legal protection, which he had right to. This is when Frederick ran. He decided he was in over his head with this con and he took off. But while trying to hitchhike out of town, the car that stopped was the car with shelter and embassy people out looking for him. So he returned to the shelter and waited for Kerry to arrive from the US, which she did on October 14. Kerry arrived in Spain, which was her first time leaving the United States, and she waited at the shelter for Frederick to come down. He knows he looks nothing like Nicholas, so he puts on a hat and a big scarf to mask his appearance a bit. As Charlie said earlier, he had already taken to wearing oversized clothes to make him seem smaller, since here we have a full-grown 23-year-old man and not a slight-built 16-year-old boy. At that meeting, Carrie didn't doubt it for a second that it was Nicholas, and she hugged him immediately. With Carrie and the embassy convinced he was Nicholas, and they were both convinced, he just had to fool the Spanish authorities because they were putting up a roadblock. They were not wanting to go ahead and rubber stamp this and let him get a U.S. passport. Back in the beginning of the episode, we mentioned how he got through this. He had to identify five family photos, and he made it through four. Now, what the authorities were not aware of was that he had seen numerous other family photos at that meeting with Carrie the day before. And all he had to do was remember a handful of names and faces. And this is a big part in the documentary as well, them pointing out the scene where he sees the photos and then the photos he gets shown in his interview. And... Like any good impersonator like and con man, like we said, Frederick was, he was very good at picking up these little facts that were dropped in his path. And he would actually go on and use this skill for four months he lived as Nicholas Barclay so that he could continue this ruse. He would 
drill his nephew about family facts and memories. He would look through the house when no one was home looking for information about Nicholas. He started imitating a way he saw a picture of Nicholas holding his hand. He really used this skill that could have been used for good to continue this con. That makes us wonder what actually happened to Nicholas. There's only one theory that a lot of people are talking about, but there are others. And we'll talk about the one everyone's talking about too, in depth. Now, we know Nicholas wasn't found homeless in Spain and is having escaped his captors. But what happened? The truth is that this was barely investigated by the police, so we don't have a lot of theories or evidence to go on. The FBI did investigate it after Frederick's arrest for this con, but that was years later. So let's go ahead and discuss these theories, and they're the usual theories when we're talking about a missing teenager. Runaway, stranger abduction, or family involvement. As far as running away goes, Nicholas had the motive and the history of having done it before. He was mad at his mum, and he was scared about being placed in a group home. He had called for a ride home, and when he didn't get one, it is possibly it started initially as, I'll show them, and he just took off. There's also a report out there that Child Protective Services had been called recently after Nick had shown up at school with suspicious bruises. So is this a case of Nicholas hiding from his mother or the authorities or even his brother Jason or all the above? There's also Jason's report of Nicholas trying to break into the house. I'm not entirely sold this actually happened, but let's just say it did and that it was Nicholas who was trying to break in, and not just some other neighbourhood teen trying to steal from the garage. This supports the theory that he could have ran off on his own. He may have been trying to get back in to grab some of his things. First off, he didn't try and break in. I don't believe that for a second. Is there a nefarious motive behind Jason saying Nicholas was trying to break in? I'm not sure of that either. Maybe he was just assuming it was Nick. I think if Nicholas was trying to break in to get his things, he would have done it sooner than three months because that's a long time to be away without anything. And he probably would have tried to break in his bedroom window or something. Now, two things that I really stand out to me against the runaway theory is that he didn't bring anything with him. His mom gave him five dollars and then he never came back and he still hasn't come back he's been gone a very long time we do not know where nicholas is spoiler alert today we do not know in all fairness no one was really looking for him so maybe he could have blended into the homeless population in a large texas city and just kind of hit hit out there but again it's been many, many years he's been gone. I don't know. Nicholas had a bunch of reasons to run away from home. As we know, he was a problem child. His home life was obviously not great. He was risking being sent away and losing all the freedom he did have. All of this could have led him thinking that running away was his only possible answer. And then he realized that life was better away from home, so he decided to stay away. The fact that he didn't have anything does go against that, but maybe soon after he left home, he came across the wrong person. 
Maybe he thought he could get some drugs from them, or maybe he tried to rob them, and then they killed him. It is true that he could have run away and something bad happened to him after he ran away. Because as you said, he's 13. You don't think clearly at 13. You don't think what's going to happen tomorrow. What am I going to do for clothes in two days' time? You just think, I'm an adult. I'm 13 now. He definitely seemed more... He he seemed to have more confidence in his street smarts than he actually had actually street had, smarts. Yeah. Which is pretty much every 13-year-old. Stranger abduction is another possibility in this case. Stranger abductions are rare, but in this particular case, Nicholas was probably at risk. He didn't want to walk the mile or two home, and his family has said that he absolutely would accept a ride from anyone who pulled over to offer him one. He liked to portray himself like a tough kid with tattoos and the like, but in reality, he wasn't exactly street savvy. He was also quite small and slight for his age, which would have made him seem like an easy target. Now, we both had a quick read through all known serial killers in the area at the time, but none really fit. But this could have been a wrong place, wrong time situation, or maybe even like Jacob Wetherling. And for those who don't know, Jacob Wedling was the young teen in Minnesota who was kidnapped and murdered. His remains were only found recently after his murderer confessed 27 years later. And at the time of this recording, he has not been linked to any other murders. So this could be someone we just don't know is an offender. And like you said, these opportunistic stranger abductions are very rare but he also was leaving a park. Now, if a pedophile was on the lookout for a young kid unsupervised, a park is where he would go to look. This case, while this is not the theory that I lean towards, this one had all those right elements. You know what? Before we did the research into this episode, I wouldn't have even considered these two options, but now I do go back and forth between this theory and the runaway theory. Unfortunately, both end up with him not being alive anymore. As I said, his family said he would get into any car. He was a small kid, an easy target. I think it's entirely possible he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now the documentary and most articles really lean towards this last theory of family involvement. And maybe because it's the most dramatic, a lot of suspicion has been laid at the feet of the family. Now, after Frederick was arrested, he, and, you know, after he told his tale of actually knowing the real Nicholas while Nicholas was in captivity, he had another story and that he had come to believe within these four months of living with the family that they had done something to Nick. And that's the reason they never questioned his identity. Proof that Nick was alive was proof that they were actually innocent of the crime. Now, Frederick also claimed that Beverly confessed to knowing what happened to Nick one night, though Beverly denies this. And, I mean, it's possible that Frederick was saying this to deflect blame away from himself. He came to the U.S. pretending to be a tortured missing kid and made a family believe that he was their child. And he's lied so much in his life. One time before he became Nicholas, he had pretended to be from Germany called the mayor of his hometown reporting that he had died and that they would be sending the body back. Now, whether this was a sincere attempt to fake his own death or not, 
You can imagine how distraught his mother was waiting on that coffin that never came and how angry she was to find out it was a lie. So personally, even if you believe the family did it theory, I don't recommend putting any weight into Frederick's perspective on this or what he said they said. Discounting, even discounting what Frederick said, let's discuss the family because if you think about it, they were very willing to believe that this was Nick against all evidence. The wrong color eyes, the dark five o'clock shadow on a 16-year-old who was blonde just three years earlier, the thick accent. So let's go ahead and take the family members one at a time and talk about Carrie, Beverly, and Jason individually. And I mean, let's discuss, were they really and truly fooled or were they playing a bit? Now for Carrie's part, I don't, I don't see it. I don't think she was acting. She flew to a foreign country she had never been to with a language she didn't speak. She couldn't afford the plane ticket. So her company sent her, they paid for it for her. If she knew this couldn't be Nicholas because she knew he was dead, why didn't she just say, nope, not him? I mean, clearly they would have sent her a picture and she could have just said, no, that's, there's no way that's him. When they returned to the U.S., she moved Frederick in with her family and allowed him to share a room with her teenage son. Who would do that? Who would move a total stranger into a bedroom with their teenage son if they knew if they knew this was a con? Like how? I don't believe she would have done that. I think that's really the deal breaker on this to me is that she wouldn't have done that. I completely agree. One thing that does stand out to me in the documentary that Kerry does say, that she says that if the family were really responsible for Nicholas's death, then why would they bring it all back into the spotlight? It was a cold case. It was a troubled boy gone missing with no evidence. And they were in the clear. They, as you said, they could have taken one look at Frederick and said, nope, that's not our kid. And that would be it which makes me think 100% Carrie knew nothing, if the family was involved, that Carrie knew nothing. Yeah, I think she was just excited to have her brother back and confirmation bias took over. She wanted this to be Nick so badly. She saw the gap to smile, the vague similarities to Uncle Pat, and just ignored the rest. And like I've said before, who in the world would even make this up? So even if she saw these red flags, I think she ignored them. She lived in a small town. She hadn't really traveled a lot. This idea of a chemical changing eye color, maybe it's possible. If the family was involved, I think Carrie was, Carrie's unaware. And at least at the time of the documentary, she was unaware. And Frederick brings up in the documentary how Carrie was with the photos, you remember, you remember, and telling him the names of the people. But I think that she was just so desperate to have her brother back. She knew he was traumatized. She was trying to make him feel comfortable and back with people who cared about him. And it wasn't clear that she even knew the photo lineup would be his test to get out of Spain anyway. Exactly. I really think she was just trying to take care of who she thought was her brother. And in the beginning of the documentary, they show a like a home movie that Nicholas is making and he shows Carrie and he refers to her as like his beautiful sister yes. or something. I. Th- so here's this troubled kid who has problems with relationships with everyone. And he's referring to his adult sister as his beautiful sister. I think 
they had a relationship. Makes me want to cry because, yeah, they obviously were so close. and They had a relationship and Carrie really missed her brother. Let's look at Beverly now. Frederick specifically named her in his statements. You can see family footage of Nicholas getting off the plane when he arrived back in America and he's greeted by the family. Beverly does hang back a bit. She said that he seemed uncomfortable and he didn't and she didn't want to push him after all he'd been through. Also she said there was something, possibly a red flag or a gut reaction that made her hold back. Maybe she did realise something wasn't quite right. I guess if we're going to say that Carrie letting him move in with her is proof that she believed it was Nick, was this Beverly's way of saying she doubted this was her son? Another check in the Beverly knew it wasn't Nick box that's often pointed to is the refusal of the DNA test. Even after it was court ordered, it said that she refused, she attempted to refuse the blood test. So did she have a reason not to want that DNA test run? Did she know it would come back not a match? And now that all these authorities are involved, they're not going to walk away from this investigation like they did the first time. They're really going to look into Nick's disappearance and why this family thought this person was their son. Now, I always try to ask myself if there's another possible explanation for a behavior. So why else wouldn't she want that blood test? Is there another reason she wouldn't want that test done? And the only answer I can really come up with is that Beverly was a drug user. Her daughter called her a very functional drug user. She went to work, she paid her bills, all of that. But even functional drug users are breaking the law. So I guess what I'm getting to is that Maybe the real reason she didn't want to go with the authorities for the blood test is she didn't trust that they wouldn't also run a drug test on it. Now, this is speculation on my part, but I do want to look to see if there was another cause to someone's suspicious behavior rather than jumping to the conclusion that they must be covering up murder. Because, I mean, there's there's room in there for why she would have refused a blood test. And Beverly mightn't have realized that a DNA blood test wasn't the same as a drug test. She thought that maybe she thought that it would come up anyway. It, that's true. It, I don't know how much she understands about DNA and blood tests. We're now getting to our favorite topic, polygraphs. If you've listened to us before, you know that they aren't our favourite tools in law enforcement, but I'll try to stop myself going on to one of my rants. But in this case, the FBI, while they were investigating the disappearance of Nicholas after Frederick's arrest, they gave Beverly a polygraph, which she passed. Then they gave her another one. She passed again, so they thought they'd give her a third one. And it's important to point out that all of these were on the same day. And on the third one, she failed. So like us at the time, you may be wondering why in the world they would be doing three polygraphs in a row like this. The answer to that is simple, drugs. Even Beverly later admitted she probably took heroin or methadone or possibly even drank some alcohol before going into her FBI interview. If Beverly had taken a narcotic prior to her interview, she wouldn't have had the usual reaction while lying that a polygraph machine usually picks up. The repeat polygraphs were done to give her body time to come off those drugs. 
And I first thought, well, why didn't they just get her to come back the next day or whatever? But then I think the concern would be there would be that the next time she returned, she'd be again under the influence and they would be right back where they started. But the thing with polygraphs is they are questionable with their accuracy at the best of times. Like we saw in the Mikkel Biggs case where her dad failed the polygraph despite being no way, no how involved in her disappearance. So we need to look at this from Beverly's side of things. She's been in an FBI interview being accused of harming her son or knowing she did harm her son and this goes on for hours. She had taken an opiate that was wearing off. So let's assume she's innocent. When Nick first went missing, the police hardly looked for him. And now here we are, four years later, they're sitting across from her and accusing her of killing him. And as I said, her body was coming down from heroin. It's really surprising she didn't fail the question, is your name Beverly Dollarhide at this point? We know polygraphs measure a response, but doesn't measure the origin of that response. But if you trust that the third failed polygraph is right, then Beverly knew something about what happened to Nicholas even if she didn't know until after the fact. And before we move on to Jason, I think something in Beverly's defense is that she was never known to be violent. Yeah, she yelled, she had anger, but everything I've read about the various calls to the house for arguments over the years as Nicholas was growing up, they had to do with Jason or Nicholas putting their hands on her and not the other way around. And from my searches on heroin, it's not an exactly a violent anger-inducing drug. It's more of a calm, chilled-out type drug. So I don't think that suddenly she would be angry when she didn't have any history of that. A drug that would be more likely to make someone agitated and violent would be something like cocaine, which happens to be Jason's drug of choice. So let's go ahead and finish up talking about the family with talking about Jason. He was in his mid-20s. He had been in the home to control the rebellious and somewhat violent teenager, and he had a drug problem with cocaine. He also had a history of being violent while he was high. Now, after Nicholas went missing, Jason went on a serious drug binge, and I think this could be read two different ways. Now, a lot of people see this as guilt, He killed his brother and he's trying to forget. But like I said before, let's ask why else. Now, what else could explain this behavior? If his brother called and said, can I have a ride home? And Jason said, no, you need to walk. And he got kidnapped on that walk. You can see why Jason would feel guilty, even though he didn't kill his brother. As for seeing Nick try to break into the garage, even Beverly, who says she does not think Jason had anything to do with Nick's disappearance. She doesn't think he saw Nick either. He was heavy into drug use at that time, so who knows what he saw or what he thought he saw if this happened at all. Jason eventually checked himself into rehab and he got clean. When Frederick came on the scene, Jason was actually working at the rehab. He helped with peer counselling and he worked for their landscaping company. He was really trying to get his life back on track. When Carrie and Frederick land in Texas, Jason was noticeably missing from the welcome party and he didn't come to see fake Nicholas for nearly six weeks after he landed in the US. 
Playing the part of Nick, Frederick would even ask when he would see Jason because presumably a brother who had been away for nearly three and a half years, he should be eager to see his brother. Jason did eventually come to Kerry's house to see Frederick. Kerry's son said that Jason was standoffish with Frederick. According to Frederick, when Jason left, he gave Frederick a small gold cross and told him good luck. This is the first and last time Jason saw Frederick. Whether he knew Frederick wasn't Nicholas because he had killed Nicholas or because he saw through the con or maybe even because he was trying to separate himself from his family, who knows. But I think it's obvious he didn't believe this was his long lost brother. The FBI investigation into Nicholas's disappearance continued with an interview with Jason. He was pretty tight-lipped and he wanted a lawyer if they were going to question him further, so they really didn't have anything to go on, so they had to let him go. Charlie Parker, everyone's favorite PI, had not let go of this case. And remember, he was only hired to find the family for a tabloid TV interview. Then he became so focused on outing Frederick as a con man, particularly since he thought he was a spy or a terrorist. But after even that was resolved, Parker wasn't done. There was still a missing boy, and he really wanted to know what happened. Now, Parker being a private investigator and not a police officer, he didn't have the same restrictions that authorities had, and he also didn't have the same authority they had. So he could ask Jason anything he wanted, and... Jason could just walk away from him if he wanted. He went so far as to outright accuse Jason of murder to his face. Now, several weeks after his FBI interview, Jason, who had been sober for a year, died of a cocaine overdose. And it's speculated that it may have been an intentional overdose because he had been sober for so long. And even his family, they don't know. They, they could go either way with whether it was intentional or accidental. With no body, no evidence, and the focus of the investigation being dead of a drug overdose, the investigation into Nicholas Barclay's disappearance closed without a resolution. Though Charlie Parker is still, or was, a, as of a few years ago, still looking for Nicholas's body. I don't know. As far as the documentary goes... I don't know how you feel about it, but it kind of, Charlie Parker kind of comes off a bit crazy towards the end with the digging in the garden. He doesn't look exactly sane. I wonder if he's, he just got really obsessed with the case or if there's a little bit of showboating in this search. I I really can't read it. I do hope he finds Nicholas because that would be nice to have some closure and for Nicholas to is I don't feel like Nicholas is alive, that Nicholas could be buried. So, Allie, do you lean any direction on what happened to Nicholas? Well, there is a possibility that maybe Jason had an altercation with Nicholas, or possibly even Beverly, which led to an accidental death. I don't think it would have been a deliberate, premeditated murder, but maybe Nicholas was being violent towards Beverly. As we know, there were rumours that that As we know, there were rumours that that was what was going on. And then Jason gets involved to try to protect his mother and to stop Nicholas. And that's why Beverly seems to not want to talk about it and wants to protect Jason so much. I do think if family's involved, it was probably Jason, probably Wild High, and probably 
in a fight with Nicholas, who was out of control and violent himself. I think if Beverly was involved at all, it was more an after the fact. I don't think she killed her son. Oh, no. I don't I don't know how much she knew. I watched the interviews with her and I find her difficult to read. Like I said, I definitely don't think Carrie was involved. But I do think a stranger abduction is a possibility in this case. As I said before, doing the research on this case, I was 100% convinced that the family were involved. But after all this research and after learning more about the family, I think I'm leaning more towards a stranger abduction or a third party being involved in Nicholas's death. It definitely, I felt the documentary, because the documentary only explored the one option, it really left me with the opinion that it was probably that option. But like you, when I did the research, I realized it it really could have gone another way. But I think it was Frederick who had me convinced with what he said. He's so convincing as a con man. Like he had, I think it was him that had me convinced the family were involved. He is, he's very disarming and he's very convincing when he says things. He really knows how to talk in a way that he sounds convincing. Yes. Let's wrap up. I mean, we still have a little ways to go, but let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what happened to Frederick? I mean, you don't just get away with this. Now, most of his impersonations weren't crimes. It's okay to pretend to be a fake person as long as you're not trying to get documents or anything legal. Now, in this case, he was he was charged and he pled guilty to perjury and obtaining and possessing illegal documents. Now, the recommended sentence under sentencing guidelines for these crimes was two years, but the judge instead gave him six because this con was so devastating. He didn't just impersonate someone or create a false identity. He told the family of a missing child that their child was okay and back in their home. That's huge. Let's picture any family of a missing child who who pulls at our heartstrings. I know we both have our cases, you know, Mikkel Biggs for me. I know William Tyrrell is uh, is your case. Imagine someone doing this to those families. It made for an interesting story looking back. It made for a really interesting documentary. It's fascinating to see how Frederick's mind works and how how disarming and charming he can be. But I don't think we can overstate how how this fraud affected Nick's family particularly Carrie, her husband, her children, who I believe truly believed him and took him into their home. While in jail, to just, you know, kind of put a point on what a great guy he is, he made numerous collect phone calls to parents of missing children, falsely claiming to have information on them, because I guess hurting this one family wasn't enough. I do have to say that Frederick's behavior is self-destructive. So I left the I left the documentary thinking, wow, he's a he's smart, he's charming. I did this research and I thought he's evil, he's a terrible human being. But I think I've kind of come around to looking at some of the other things he he self-mutilated. He broke laws, he got in physical altercations. He did a lot of things that are also symptoms of a child who had been through trauma or abuse. So 
While I may not believe his entire story of his childhood, something happened to him. He is a hurt human being, and he is a broken human being who I hope has healed himself. I, I go back and forth between evil and hurt with who he is. Up until a week ago, before I really started analysing this case, I really felt sorry for Frederick as well. As I, I told you as much, Charlie, but now... Look, I just think he's a highly intelligent sociopath that enjoyed nothing more than getting off at the expense of other people's emotional distress. I think the fact that he, when he contacted the parents of missing children in prison, that really got to me because it was no longer a con. It was just him desperate for attention. I mean, yes, he did have some disadvantage in his life, but so do a lot of people. That does not excuse what he did to this family, or if you believe that they knew he wasn't Nicholas, what he attempted to do to this family. So after his sentence was complete, he was deported to his native France. And of course, he didn't learn his lesson, and he didn't have any remorse for what he did, because soon after this, he claimed to be a boy named Leo Bailey. The story here goes, in 1996, the real Leo Bailey was six years old. He went on a camping trip with his father and three of his father's friends. While his father was distracted pitching the tent, little Leo disappears. Searches of the camping area and bodies of water gave no clues. So Frederick claimed to be the now 14-year-old Leo, but DNA proved this was a false claim, obviously. Now, if you think about this, this is after he went back. So he had to have been in his late 20s at this point, claiming to be a 14-year-old. It was a stretch when he was 23 to be a 16-year-old, let alone a late 20s being a 14-year-old. In March of 2004, there was a coordinated bombing in Madrid, Spain, and it killed 192 people, and it's known as the Madrid train bombing, if you want to look it up for more information. In August of 2004, a teen named Ruben Sanchez Espinosa showed up, claiming to be an orphan from the attacks. Of course, this was Frederick, and he was deported back to France. And then in 2005, he became Francisco Hernandez Fernandez, a 15-year-old Spanish orphan who was found in much the same way he played it when he became Nicholas Barclay. Now, only this time, he had an ID with that name. He claimed he had an abusive uncle that he was fleeing, and he also had a receding hairline, so this love of hats he had came in handy. He spent his time wearing a hat, claiming that he had scars on his head from this abuse, which is also something he claimed to Nicholas's family, is that he had scars on his body. It's unclear in the documentary if they ever saw the scars. Yeah, he does mention in the documentary that or someone does that he had burn marks on the back of his neck and there was a broken hand that hadn't healed properly and he walked with a limp but I couldn't find anything outside of the documentary that claimed that it was actually seen like a medical examination or if they just took it at Frederick's word. Right. It was his brother-in-law who said that and so I looked at a bunch of pictures online of Frederick and I didn't notice any deformities in his hands, so I don't know how they would know that there was a badly healed break. So I don't I don't know. He may have just been saying that. I mean, you can fake pain in your hands pretty easily and say, oh, it was from a break that didn't heal. 
Yeah. As Francisco, he spent a month in a youth shelter and enrolled in high school before a teacher saw a television program about a con man named Frederick Borden, known as a famous chameleon, and realized he looked just like Francisco. And as far as I can tell, Francisco is the end of the con line. In 2007, Frederick married. He invited his mother and grandfather to the wedding, but his mother said they didn't show up because, drumroll, they thought he was lying about it. Now, he and his wife have five children. So I get that he's a good actor, and like I said, I found it very fascinating, but knowingly and without regard for their feelings he attached himself to two families of missing children and that's nearly unforgivable for me if you take away his intelligence and his charm what do you have left you have someone who's doing terrible things for his own self-interest i have to hope that now that he's a father and he's hopefully learned to think of someone other than himself he might be able to fully appreciate what he did to nick and leo's families It'd be interesting to know now, after being on the con for so many years, whether he is living on the straight and narrow now and not doing anything con artist-like. I guess until he gets caught, we won't, or if he gets we caught, know. We, won't, we won't really know. So in closing, before we get to our housekeeping, I want to give our shout outs to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your donations. And our bonus episode up right now is Casper Hauser. It'll be available until February 15th. And then the next episode will be on the mysterious writings of Ricky McCormick. And a huge thank you to Kristen B, Karen P, and Allie for your contributions. Thank you so much. And if you donated in January, we just got your rewards out to you this past weekend. And anyone who donates in February, you can expect your rewards in the first part of March. And we want to give some shout outs to our five star reviewers. We will never catch up doing just three at a time. So we're going to do five today. Thank you, Ryan EW. Thank you, Variance. And Gracie YY96. Thank you so much. Annie Masari, thank you, and thank you to Comic Book Kid 82. We really appreciate you taking the time to leave those reviews for us because I know not everyone uses iTunes and it's not always that easy. These were all left last August, so I really hope you're all still listening because we've gotten way better. You were really nice to give us five star reviews back in the beginning. And also, congratulations to Jessica M. for winning our January giveaway. Stay tuned on Facebook for the details on our February giveaway, which will be coming up soon. And I promised a special shout out to a listener and participant on our Facebook group. She said nobody gets her name right, so I'm going to take a crack at it. Having a Danish mother-in-law makes me think I can say Swedish names really well, so shout out to Ulva. Not bad, right? You'll you'll have to let me know how I did. So you can find us on Facebook at Insight Pod. We have a page. We mostly just post little things there. The really active place to talk to us is in the group. You can message us on Facebook as well. We respond to every message we get. You can talk to me directly on Twitter at InsightfulPod. Allie's on Instagram at InsightPod. And you can email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We both read all the emails. Sometimes, I mean, it's been great. We've been getting a lot more messages, emails, comments on Facebook and Twitter. It might take us a day or two to get to, back to you, but we do answer every email. 
And I think that's it. So we will see you guys next week.